Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast not claiming to have all of the answers, but created to analytically look at the truth contained in the Bible and encourage critical thinking on how to apply that truth to our lives. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. No matter your level of understanding or knowledge, I sincerely hope and pray that you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. So let's get started. So moving on then to the moral argument for God's existence. This one is um, a little bit more uh, palatable, I think, for people. I think um, naturalists run into a lot of problems with this argument because um, like with like with the ontological argument, you have to basically concede that, or like, you, like you mentioned, um, I can't trust my, or I mentioned I can't trust my senses, and you said I can't trust my reasoning, I can't trust my thinking. Uh, that kind of is what naturalism ends up devolving into. But then for moral, the moral argument for God's existence, it ends up on naturalism devolving into, well, there is no morality. And that is a hard thing for even a lot of skeptics to swallow, just um, as a heart issue, you know, even just within themselves, not thinking about reasoning or rationalization, but just within themselves to admit and fully say there is no morality. That's really tough. So uh, to go through the moral argument, basically, I'm going to I'm going to give the very or, or the the more official version of what the moral argument is and then if you could make me sound like i make sense that would be fantastic so the moral yes. argument yeah the moral argument for god's existence goes as follows if the moral code and or actions of any individual or society can properly be subjects of criticism as to real moral wrong then there must be some objective standard some higher law which transcends the provincial and transient, which is other than the particular moral code in which has obligatory character which can be recognized. Two, the moral code and or actions of any individual or society can properly be subjects of criticism as to real moral wrong. Three, therefore there must be some objective standard or some higher law which transcends, which is other than the particular moral code and which has the obligatory character which can be recognized. If there is transcendent objective moral standard, there must be a transcendent metaphysically sufficient creator of the objective moral standard. Five, there is a transcendent objective moral standard. Six, therefore, there is a transcendent metaphysically sufficient creator of the objective moral standard. More simply put, if there is no God, then objective moral values don't exist. Two, objective moral values do exist Three, therefore, God exists. So that's more a much more simple version of that. If you could, because um, I think, although the simple version is more palatable, within the larger version, I think there's more detail. So could you kind of split the difference and, and explain a little bit the, the moral argument for God's existence? Yeah, so I, I think if you put this in, in common sense terms, and maybe if we put it in, in personal terms, so if you were to say have an actual conversation with someone uh, about this, or even a debate about about this, you, you would you would have to to get them to admit, or or you would point out to them that you cannot call anything objectively wrong. Imagine the the worst, most awful, horrible thing that you can, and you have no right or no power to say that that is objectively wrong, unless. You admit that objective morality exists because if it's subjective, anything goes and that person can have their definition of right and wrong and I can have mine and who am I to tell him that mine is better than his? Right. And if, I mean, that, that is absolute chaos. Yeah. <laughs> I think the average person, even the well-informed, educated person, the, the academic elite who's denying God left and right uh, has to admit that that is a, a just visceral, shattering kind of thing to have to admit when you look at the depth of depravity that man is capable of to say that uh, you know nothing is actually wrong now the the thing is if if you can get someone on a personal level to admit that that there is a line somewhere even if you know i put it somewhere and you put it somewhere else that somewhere in there there is a line on any single issue that line had to come from somewhere and unlike the laws of physics that govern the universe that some might argue arose from chance or from whatever, a, a moral law or a moral sense of absolute right and wrong existing, I, I don't know that anyone has attempted to conceive of where it might come from other than God. Right. 
Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. And, and I think a problem really in this, we'll, we'll get to refutations in a minute, but a problem that people have with this initial argument is the word objective. Because agree, to agree to objective moral values, you have to understand what the word objective even means. Because some people will say, well, I mean, most people are pretty good or most people do pretty good. The world's still running, you know, we're still functioning. So maybe uh, morals have just evolved and that's okay because, um, because we can all agree to what's right and wrong and so that's fine. But the problem is objective points to the fact that even if the whole world was, well, we're, we're getting close to depravity if we're not already there, but the whole world was submer- were submerged in depravity, there would still be a right or wrong. So the argument that I've heard is, uh, at least to understand obje- objectivity, is if World War II ended completely differently and the Nazis won and a new world order ensued and Nazi uh, ideologies were blanketing the earth, and everybody agreed that this was right, it still wouldn't make it right. That's not what objective means. Objective means transcendent, above uh, human reasoning. And I, I think it, we, we do have that deep down. We understand that even though you might say something on a point, I might say, might say something on a point, there is a right in there, even if we might disagree on what that right is, because we have the ability to be wrong. So that's why I think this one is not just... Uh, emotionally convicting, but also just absolutely fascinating to cover. So would you say objective moral values exist? I mean, just as a, as a person, that seems like a dumb question, but you have to start there, right? Do objective moral values exist? And and it comes down to the thing is you don't have to, to prove what those moral values are, what they exist. Uh, You know, just like with the ontological argument, don't, don't have to say anything about what God is, who he is or any quality of his character. Uh, mm. Same uh, you know, can be said for this argument, that all we have to agree on is that you know, such a thing as right and wrong exists. So yeah, as, as an average person, as a, as a pastor, sure, yes, the objective morality exists. And by the way, it's the law of God revealed in the Bible. Right. Uh, but maybe looking at that sense of philosophy, where does it leave you if you assume it doesn't? Mm-hmm. And it leads you to a very dark place. Uh, you know, if you assume there's no objective morality, uh, then, then you go to this utterly depressing and inconsequential form of existence where all human experience and perception is just a, a meaningless charade and right. nothing that you has, has any meaning. Uh, I find that very uh, depressing and disheartening to, to <laughs> think on. And I think most people who don't believe in objective morality just don't go down that path. They, they kind of right. take it as a thing where they give a quick denial. No, I don't believe in God. I'm going to reject that one. No, thank you. And, and they move on and don't really dwell on the consequences of it. Because what it means is that, you, you know, pick any, pick any horrible thing that you can think of and you say that there is no boundary. This can go as far as, it, as, far as you want to take it and it's not actually wrong. I might feel it's wrong because it injures me, but there's nothing actually right or wrong anywhere. Right. And I, I find that a disturbing thought. I, I don't know how people live with it. Yeah, then you have to answer questions like, how do you then justify punishment for certain things, like just societal yeah. agreement at the time? Or does, can that change where suddenly, um, take murder, for example. Right now in society, if you asked any person on the street, is murder wrong, Christian or atheist, it wouldn't matter. They'd say, absolutely, that's wrong. And they would see that as a punishable offense. But through this, if you then can't accept that, or, or you can't admit that anything is right or wrong, or you can't um, make that decision or judgment, or I guess not even you make the decision, but if you can't understand that there is that um, transcendent right or wrong, then, well, how do you decide that this person des- deserves punished? Because in their morality, they did something that was perfectly fine. Cannibals, for example, in uh, different tribal, tribal countries, and they're, they're eating people. But in their mind, they're doing something right, whether it's passing on their ancestors' uh, abilities to them or, or what have you. There's, there's different beliefs on that. But in their mind, they're doing something wrong. But is it wrong? Or is it just, in my opinion, wrong? And that, um, I, I think what's interesting, too, is it actually, if you listen to people that discuss the fact that there are no objective moral values, they, they do lead, in my opinion, to, like you said, a, a depraved culture. 
but they actually have, there's more to think about here than just saying, I mean, I, I don't want to discount the feeling aspect of, yes, I can just internally sense and know that there is right and there is wrong in this world. But um, the argument itself where, where people disagree with that, I, I think is also interesting. We can learn from that rather than just saying, well, I just feel that it is. I don't want to discount it, but they do have uh, things to say sometimes. And I, I think that's at least interesting. So would, would you say that, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, maybe back up on my presentation a little bit of, of how they could say, uh, it, you know, they wouldn't be able to say anything's objectively wrong. Uh, and, it, you know, that was kind of my, uh, my take on how to explain this to a person. But, it, you know, they, they can say something is wrong without saying it's objectively wrong. So it's mm -hmm. not, it doesn't necessarily have to lead to a total breakdown of order because they can say that, well, I'm here and, you know, I, I want to maximize my happiness because that feels better than, than not. And so why don't we agree that these things are things we won't do? And if someone does it, we'll discourage that. And, and you, you know, you, you can create a system of law uh, of your own in the absence of objective morality. Yeah. Uh, but, but you have to understand what you're doing is ultimately meaningless. And so that yeah. kind of being void of any meaning or purpose or foundation or basis uh, uh, all of that is is out the window if you go that route. I yeah, I see what you're saying. You you would also uh, I, so I guess the the um, the difficulty would come in the shifts in moral acceptance of behavior, not in that we have society right now that is functioning, but it's um, the fact that it's it shifts to things that are that believe in right and wrong, and those shifts uh, with with objective moral value don't actually constitute a change in morality if you have objective morality if a shift in culture doesn't um doesn't change that objective morality so it just changes the culture itself so that might be more where you see because you have objective morality as your um kind of your keystone or, or the thing you're basing everything off of so when you shift away and towards it that's when you more see uh, I, I think the breakdown of opinionated morality, I guess, is what you would call, or subject to morality is probably the better term to use. So yeah, that, that was a good point. I appreciate that. So then how would we then uh, prove, like we can understand or, or feel that objective moral values exist, but how would you prove it to a person that would say, well, no, they don't, even though you might not meet many people that say that, but... Well, I, I think that oftentimes the place that that comes from is a preconception that there is no God and nothing we're doing actually matters anyway. And that, right. that's their statement. So they'll say no morality can exist because no God exists. Right. Rather than you know, going to the question and examining it, uh, you, you know, even if they would, they would admit that if objective morality existed, God, you know, there must be a God then they can still take that out and say, well, I think we're all just <laughs> following biochemical processes that result of some collisions of, of, of particles and, and whatever and move on with their lives. I, I think so for, for my part, um, being able to actually prove that, I, I'm not sure exactly where I would go with that, but I, I think we could take, going back to mathematics, a probabilistic argument. <laughs> uh, and, and I won't quantify this as probabilistic, but... And sure. maybe give you all alternatives that, you know, so if no objective morality exists, and yet we see that every culture, and in fact, every individual has their own concept of right and wrong, even if it's one that's wildly skewed from what I think is right and wrong, uh, which is more likely that no objective morality exists, so everybody just came up with whatever they wanted, uh, and, and, you know, all cultures, though, somehow independently arrive at the illusion that it does exist, mm -hmm. but we're all just deceiving that. Or is it more likely that all cultures or every individual human being uh, actually does have some built-in draw towards, you know, God said eternity in man's heart, that, that, that really all of our concepts of morality are a corruption of an objective and perfect law. Uh, and I, I think that that really has a lot more explanatory power in the world, which is something on a scientific basis, you look for a theory that has explanatory power. So the fact of there being uh, an objective moral standard set by a creator God, and then people have corrupted from that to varying degrees, I, I think that that explains the common threads uh, throughout society in a way that's much more powerful than, say, evolution um, mm. would be explain such uh, you know, morality arising. 
Hmm. So, so that's my that's my probabilistic answer. Which one are you going to put on? <laughs> I yeah, I, I appreciate that. that. That reminds me of who who was it that? Oh man, I'm I'm blanking on the name, but there was um, basically like this argument that if Christianity is fifty fifty, right or wrong, it pays to believe in Christianity rather than not because if it's not true, well then okay then nothing happens, you know, or maybe it's not Christianity, but just uh, morality in general or, or religion in general. But if, if there is a higher calling to something, it pays to believe in that, even if it's a 50-50 shot, because that works out best for you in the end. The, if it's not true, well, okay, you die and there's nothing. But that kind of reminds me of that. I love how math can, I first of all, I'm horrible at math, but I like that math can translate to logic, which can, which can translate to philosophy which can translate just to humanity. So I appreciate you bringing humanity to mathematics. Pascal's wager that you're describing. Yes, so. Pascal's wager. That's right, man. Pascal, the mathematician, by the way, so I'm supposed to know stuff like that. Uh, and, yeah. And he, he, he basically, like you said, thought out uh, the different possibilities and which one gives you the highest risk versus reward. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the, maximum, the most optimal choice is to believe in God and act like there is one. Right. Yeah, that, that's fascinating to me. So what would you say then to someone who says, okay, well, we have society, it's working. What's the problem if objective morality just doesn't exist? Obviously, um, you mentioned, well, if it doesn't exist, then what, what else is there? You know, you, you kind of almost run into this hopeless hopelessness or, or arbitrary nature of, of what society is or what goodness is. And, and that leads to hopelessness, I would say. But what, what else would you say to them on the topic of, okay, well, if it doesn't exist, what's the problem with that? Yeah, it, it's a lot more than just, you know, it's personally depressing. <laughs> it, right. it, it's destructive. And this has been tried in human history. Yeah. Um, most uh, you know, one of the most famous of those was in communist Russia when they were a stated atheist state and you know, did away with all religion by force and, and took away that sense of any objective moral standards. That's where atheism leads to. Um, and it resulted in one of the most tragic and horrible and largest scale losses of life in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing has gone on in other uh, world regimes that have denied, like institutionally denied the existence of objective morality, well, then human life loses value and people act like it has no value, treat it like it has no value. And when you get to that point, people die. They die by the millions or worse. And this is why Jesus Christ warned about the last days uh, to to come in Matthew 24. Christ said that unless those days were cut short, no flesh would be saved alive. And you know, is that directly saying everybody's going to become an atheist and they're going to think it's meaningless and just kill each other for fun? Well, <laughs> no, but not necessarily. But uh, we've seen how this has played out in not that distant history, right? Uh, where just masses, unfathomable numbers of human lives have been lost as a result of this type of thinking that there's no objective morality. So if that's a world people want to live in, if you want to choose that world, then I'm sorry, that's, <laughs> that's not my choice. I choose the other one. Right. So, so you're saying then that to go a little bit off script, but I, I think I actually put it in uh, my outline, but just to kind of shift it up a little bit, you're saying then that loss of objective morality in the long run would lead to loss of valued life in, or if you don't have objective morality, then people's uh, value of life goes down, which leads to catastrophe. So then what would you say, because a lot of people will point to objective morality and say, well, no, evolution can explain morality. We've, we've evolved our morality or we've societally kind of unspokenly agreed upon what morality is. And that seems to work. And, with that argument, you have to maintain then that every decision on morality is something that basically propagates the human race or keeps the human race going. And I think you brought up a good point with, with no objective morality, you have no value of human life, and then you have no human life. So with evolution, it's to continue a species, right? So if you're, um, or survival of the fittest, if that's how our morality has come to be, then how is it 
that essentially I, I don't I just don't think they have an answer for that because you brought up a really good point how if objective morality is lost, I've said it like three times now, but if I just want to really emphasize if objective morality is lost, human life, the value of human life goes way down. And if morality is subjective and created by humans and evolutionary and it's survival of the fittest on what is right or wrong, then you have to say that everything that we do morality wise leads to survival of a species. And I think those kind of things, those things are conflicting. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, there, there's definitely a conflict there because, you know, if, if that's, if the premise is true, if there's no objective morality and all these things just evolve as useful concepts to further the existence of an organism, you know, evolution doesn't actually care about anything. That, that's right. like the dirty bit of the theory. It doesn't, it doesn't have a goal. It doesn't have, it's just a, it's our way of describing something they would say that just happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, I mean, what people with that kind of mindset are, are really thinking anyway, if you if you take it out in the long game, is that the heat death of the universe is inevitable. And right. you, you know, at a certain point, we're, everything's just gonna be gone and not exist anymore, and none of it will have mattered. And no one right. will care because we'll be around because there's no God. Um, so, so I think uh, looking at that, it's, um, it, it, you know, it, it puts in a, in a perspective where, where, like you said about, about that, um, that, that conflict that, uh, so, so maybe these concepts are, are, you know, they could say are useful for a time to further a species, but that, that wouldn't, uh, I, I don't know, I, I guess maybe they would comment on something about the diversity of moralities being like the diversity of organisms. I, I can only speculate what they would say there. But, but I do think that ultimately when you see the large scale destruction of human life uh, that, that's been caused by these things, it, it, it's an argument against that just from experience. Right. And, and pointing to the Bible, like you said, in, in Matthew, where it says at the end, which obviously someone you're, refu- you're arguing this with wouldn't say, probably wouldn't say, oh yeah, that's a good point. Because prophetically, I, I agree prophetically, but not literally right now that'd be hard but but as as christians it's it's easy to see that um things play out not too well for mankind you know life is devalued as we continue to go on and on and unless that time was cut short no flesh would be saved alive so there has to be something keeping that value on human life so then what about the the opposite side because um sometimes people on on our side of of the moral argument will say things, or I think a flaw we run into, I'll say that, a flaw we run into is pointing out horrible things that humans have done and saying, see, this happened and everyone can agree that this is wrong. The problem is, if you hang your hat on that version of morality, you're no longer being objective, you're being subjective, you're, you're, you're putting a democracy on uh, moral or morality, and that doesn't really work with objective morality. So, do you see that being something that people kind of fall into? Because I know with morality, you have to talk about good things and bad things that happen. I, I think that's natural. But how would you avoid kind of that trap? Or, or do you see that even as a trap that we arguing from a point of morality fall into? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting question. So, so I, I think that you spoke to that a little bit earlier when you talked about, you know, what if history had gone differently? What if the Nazis had one and established, you know, a, a state that was, you know, encompassed the world bent on ethnic purity and these other things that most people agree is evil. Uh, we really can't appeal to universality to say that objective moral standards exist because, um, you know, you're, you're exactly right there that um, I, I think it's a nuanced point. It's one that the average person won't run into. Uh, doing something like this, but but maybe we should be aware of since we're discussing this at a level of detail that we are. Mm-hmm. That you know we we can't point to one thing and say, see, everyone agrees that's wrong. So that that segment is part of objective moral reality, uh, or, or uh, yeah, objective uh, morality. Um, so so we do have to be careful of that. So that kind of drifts further into to the discussion of okay, what is the objective moral reality and you know, I, I would argue that it is the the law of the God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I would say that that's the objective moral standard, and I could argue in favor of that, and people could ask me about different parts of it. Right. And I 
it and they can attack it if they want. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, hanging our hat on, on something being universally considered wrong, all someone has to do is find a counterexample and say, ah, oh, well, I found a guy over here who says right. he doesn't think it's wrong. And now you know, your argument's blown. Right. Re- reading about uh, like the gulags, we kind of mentioned things that happened in communist Russia. When I was reading about some of the things that happened, um, people against the argument for objective morality will, and, and we'll get to how that translates to believing then in God or a lawgiver in just a second. But when I was reading about these things, there are people that will believe that the horrible, horrible things that they're doing are completely right. So when you hang your hat on, well, everybody agrees that the Holocaust or the gulags were horrible, horrible events in history. You can <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, one quote that I found says, "Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts inside." Inside us, it oscillates with the years, and even within hearts of hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained, and even in the best of all hearts, there remains an up an unuprooted small corner of evil. So even in the in the best people, you'll find things that they have that are evil inside of them. Even in the worst people, you'll find good things inside of them. But there is an extreme difference between the absolute worst person and the absolute best person, and if you like I said, if you begin to um, justify objective morality based on the fact that everyone, or just a generalized everyone thinks this is wrong, you run into problems because people always will justify the evil things that they're doing. So you'll always find someone and then your whole argument falls apart. So that's just something to be careful of uh, going forward. So then it begs the question, if there is, oh, you have a comment to that, sorry. You have a comment? I was just going to say, I think that's a really um, quote, first of all, uh, from Gulag Archipelago. Yeah. And um, the, the idea that you know a person has to believe that what he's doing is good. And for, for me, I was just thinking of Satan and going back to what we're, what we're told about Satan's sin in the Bible. It, you know, it began with self-deception. And, you mm-hmm. know, self-deception of what he was doing was right. He said, I will ascend. I will be like the most high. Um, so, so thinking of it even in that terms for, you know, for those that accept the existence or the truth of the Bible, the existence of Satan and, and those words as reliable speaks to that same um, kind of self-deception to cause oneself to do evil, but thinking that they're doing good. Uh, it's, it's powerful and maybe even transcends human existence is what I'm Right. Well, even, I mean, even in a, a more moderate, we've looked at, the gulags and we've looked at Satan, but even in our own personal lives, I think we notice it in things that we'll say, well, well, that's kind of a gray area. And it's like, well, there's not actually gray area. There's only perception of gray area because we don't know answers to things. But within that gray area, man, we will justify all kinds of things, even though our conscience is pricking us, telling us, nah, maybe, maybe don't do that thing, but we'll, we'll justify a lot, even in our own lives. So I'm not saying general listeners are going to be going out and, killing people or doing horrendous things, but just look at your own, I think this brings it to a personal level, look at your own ability to justify things that you do that you feel are wrong, but you do anyways, and then later justify. People do that for extreme things as well. And I, it's it's interesting. It's hor- horrible to look at, but. Yeah, yeah. And I think that actually ties into, um, if I go back to Kurt Goodell again, the you know, mathematician with all these logical things. His most famous theorem actually was his incompleteness theorem. And um, basically it says if you have any system that is complicated enough, uh, there, there will be things that you cannot prove from within the system. So the, even the existence of moral gray areas, I see as being tied to something we can prove logically because we can mm-hmm. take something as, as just the, the set of integers, you know, the whole numbers basically, and the operations like addition, subtraction, multiplication, division and if, uh, if you consider just a system that simple and that well-defined you, you can make logical statements about it that you cannot prove without something from the outside of the system and it, you know so why why do these gray areas exist even for for those of us who adhere to the bible who believe in objective moral reality 
I believe there's a God. And I think you put it well that there are no true gray areas. There's just things that are outside our domain of knowledge. So Godel's incompleteness theorem kind of speaks to that, like in the way that, you know, yes, this is something that will necessarily exist. There will right. be questions you cannot answer, no matter how detailed of a guidebook that you have. You know, God has the answers because he's outside of the domain of existence because right. you know, that's a great being. And he, he can do it understand no things that we can't do know and understand at this point mm-hmm. um but I, I i think looking at that was just kind of a it was interesting to me maybe more interesting to me because of my background and I'm kind no of no yeah that's <laughs> fascinating I, I think it's really interesting too we went back to necessarily existing and how morality being uh so connected to god which in the ontological we talked about god necessarily existing and now we're talking about morality which comes from God being necessarily existent. I just think that's interesting how they tie together. And I think there is a lot of um, interconnectedness between a lot of the arguments. Obviously, God is the the focal point of both. So, and, and you know, we talked earlier also about certain uh, things being built into the fabric of reality, almost like a fingerprint of God. It's on human reason, reasoning. Now we see the fingerprint of God on even the the basic concept of morality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking at the fact that, um, you know, why, why might this be that we, we can't have the answer to every question, even on something morally? You know, doesn't God want us to have the answer to every question? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there's even a, a reason for that that we can derive from the Bible itself, it, it, the fact that God wants us to become like him, you know, by learning his law, by working at it for a lifetime and with his help, we learn to make judgments on things that we don't have an explicit answer for. I think God's right. very interested in the way that we judge things. Which I know all that's way outside the domain of what we're talking about today. No, no, no. Still, still. Where, uh, you know, uh, brand of Christianity that, that we yeah. described. No, and still, and still very connected, I think. I mean, I, I like that you said he wants us to become like him because there, there are things we don't, we don't know. And, um, it's a progression, you know, of understanding. And sometimes I'm, I'm hoping my gray area gets less and less and less because I understand more and more of what God's absolute truth is. So I definitely think that's connected. That's all good. So we, we've kind of, it's connected sorry. in a way too, but yeah, you know, we, we believe that there is a, a purpose for everything. And I've kind of hit that from the other side that the not accepting these arguments leads to a purposelessness, a meaninglessness, mm-hmm. whereas you know, I, I think that we were created by a creator who has a very distinctive purpose for us and a, and sure. a wonderful. And so it's really the antithesis of that whole vision and, and viewpoint. But yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to again. No, no, no. I, I feel like I've interrupted you because mainly what I've done is repeat things you say. And then mainly what you've done is expound and bring brilliant ideas to this. So I need to be the one well, stopping the interruption. I'm really excited because this is fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So we've kind of... Um, gone over some refutations but so i I don't want to spend too much time on that but i would be remiss if we didn't at least connect objective morality to god because that's kind of the other half of that argument so we have this idea of a law or an objective law objective morality but then that begs the question of a law giver so if there is objective morality and there is a law giver what would be the next step towards proving the God of the Bible as that lawgiver, as opposed to another being or religious deity? And this is kind of where we can bring in uh, a little more theology as well, as opposed to just the apologetic side. I, th- I think they go hand in hand. But So if we have this objective law, we have this thing that's always been, well, it had to come from somewhere because everything came from somewhere, unless you want to say that morality itself is God, which... It's, it, it speaks to a mind, you know, creating it. So with a law, there has to be a law giver. There has to be something, a, a mind behind the law. So with that, then how can we go on as Christians to prove that this lawgiver is the God of the Bible? Uh, yeah, so, so now we're kind of making a, a bigger leap. I think we started out with nothing but the human experience. And, you know, some people are willing to deny even that. Now, if we allow morality into the picture, just the, the human concept of morality, uh, that, that gives us a little bit more tools to play with and explore. And mm-hmm. so we get the argument for God. And, and now if we, if we bring the, the whole word of God and the law of God into the picture, 
Um, we can now take that as a, okay, so in the realm of all possible moralities uh, and all possible gods, here's a particular one that you have to decide uh, what to do with. Uh, so, so I think the first thing that people have to do is, is to consider and judge and evaluate the Bible and investigate its claims. We, we talked earlier about how you know, if something is true, it has to be able to stand up to every claim. Um, and, and, you know, for uh, this doesn't mean that anytime anyone writes a document and calls it a religious truth document, we have to spend our valuable time going through it and right. evaluating. The Bible is one that's been around for a long time. A lot of people have tried to disprove it. A lot of people have spent time refuting those attempts to disprove it. It's gone back and forth, and it's had an undeniable massive impact on the world. Uh, so considering it for ourselves, investigating its claims, and testing it uh, by, by all kinds of different means. Um, you know, looking, if I, if I stay, try to, try to stay focused here on morality elements. Uh, so morality, we believe, does involve this concept of law. If we uh, look at the, the law of God, or if we want to consider whether something is the law of God, one quality I think is important that we, we have to be sure is there, a necessary quality for a, a divine law, is that it has to be consistent. It can't have any contradictions in it, or else we can say, aha, this, uh, this thing is not perfect. This can't be from any higher being because it has obvious inconsistencies. Uh, so testing it on that is something that um, I think is very natural for us to do. I, I think sometimes people get confusion over what the law of God intends or what it means in certain places, and so they'll perceive contradictions in it and therefore reject it. Um, and, you know, I, I think a longer conversation can be had because, you know, I've, I've gone through this myself. I reached my conclusion and I spend a sure. lot of time eating and dissecting God's law. And I, I haven't found anything that I could say is a contradiction at all. I found, right. if anything, ridiculous consistency. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> not even just a little bit, ridiculous consistency. Uh, but but I, I can admit that consistency is a controversial point for some, but it's a necessary one that has to be there if, in fact, it's the law of God. Um, I think the other thing, getting back to human experience, is is actually testing if it works in your life. Um, you know, the point and purpose of a moral law is, and this gets back to our idea of metrics again in that whole mm -hmm. discussion, is that there's such a thing as a better way to live, or a best way to live, or a worse way to live, right? And, and if there's a better and a worse way, a way to live, there's got to be a, a best way to live. So how do we measure the quality of morality in our lives and the value that it presents? Um, you know, one way is to try it and see. In fact, the, the Bible says, you know, God says at a certain point, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, try it, you might like it. <laughs> and I, I think like it's normal. Everybody at some point in their life, um, you know, sins, they experiment with evil and they, they or, or just plain make mistakes. And through that process, we learn the results of that behavior. Right, so we, we can learn some of the moral law through through experience and the way things don't work out when it's really bad and the signal's really clear. Uh, sometimes the signal's not always clear. Sometimes there's kind of this delayed action uh, as a result of breaking God's law. But those who really experiment with the righteousness of the Bible, defining God's law, most often find it to be incredibly rewarding. And I think that's a testament to the God who gave it, that he, he gave the best way for a human being in our condition to live and experience life. And if we adhere to it more and more, we'll have a better and better life that we'll enjoy more and more. And right. it doesn't mean there's chips. That's another discussion altogether. Uh, but yeah. So not oversimplify things, but... And uh, in, in the sense of being satisfied with our moral choices and uh, feeling that we've done the right thing and knowing that we've done the right thing, we can derive a certain amount of pleasure out of that. Uh, and, and also we'll, we'll have some objectively better things too. Like if you're not going around lying to everyone, then people will trust you. And right. that's a better way to live. It's better to live being trusted than to be mistrusted. Uh, so, so those kinds of things I, I, I think are just at-home tests that every person can put into their life and, and determine for themselves whether whether this is true, whether they can believe that this came from a higher power. Yeah, I appreciate that, bringing it back. I, I think with ontological argument, it's definitely necessary to bring it back to a personal level. But then with this, the moral argument, I think it naturally is more personal. People can think of great things in their lives and horrible things they've seen. And they kind of have a general feeling for 
this objective morality, but then I, I think even bringing it more personal than that, like you just did, I think is really beneficial. And, and to speak to some of the inconsistencies that people say they see within the Bible, I think a lot of that comes down to a gray area as well. I, I think you touched on that just where it's like, it's more of a perceived inconsistency or rather than it is an actual inconsistency. So people will say, well, God can't be good like he appears in the New Testament because he's clearly evil in the Old Testament by wiping out these nations or things like that. And I think that um, those kind of things you should probably take on a case-by-case basis because it can't be, there's not a blanket statement for why this situation is uh, good or justified. There are answers though in each situation. And I think if you break all of those down, because that's often what people will do, will say, well, Christianity can't be true because there's these inconsistencies in the law of God or how God acts within, um, within that law. But I think that brings up another point. God is the law giver. So he is not, um, he is not subject. He doesn't have the moral duty that we have, the moral imperative that we have now he is good. And so he does um, exhibit those characteristics. He does abide by that. And I, I think we can, we can understand some of the things that are hard to understand in the, in the old Testament through the eyes of the new Testament and realize that those things are, are not wrong. But for example, when God kills a person in the old Testament, someone would look at that and say, well, he says that murder is wrong. So how can he do that? Well, he is not bound by the same moral duty that we are. He's the one that gave the law or would you, would you disagree with that? That's what I've heard from other people. I, I think I would disagree with that, actually. I, I think that if we take a comprehensive view of God, um, you know, he's, he's, yes, he's described as a God of love in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah. And the other side of that, you know, what makes it a comprehensive view, is he's also a God of justice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people generally don't say that, that you know, our society is is good when it rewards people for doing good and evil when it punishes people for doing evil. It's good when it does both. It's good to punish people for doing evil. Uh, and so, so I think that, um, you know, yes, God as the creator and giver of life has the, the power to take it, the authority to take it, but he only takes it for reasons that a person has earned. Um, <clears throat> so, so I think that, you know, looking at that, like looking at why, uh, the, the Canaanites were wiped out by the Israelites at God's mm-hmm. command, uh, for example. It, it comes down to the fact of the evil that they had done. And mm-hmm. just the, what we read about happens to be the way that God dealt with them and punished them for their sins, which might seem extreme to this or that person. But really, it's God doling out justice for unspeakable evils that they had done within their society. And namely, child sacrifice is the sure. one that the Bible points to. Uh, that they were steeped in and it was this terrible sin that God hated and actually abided with for a very long time and gave them a lot of opportunity to change before he enacted this. So so I think uh, taking the, the, like I said, this more comprehensive view of God is one thing that people lack. They they want to um, just point to an inconsistency instead of trying to look for an explanation within the framework of what the Bible says that explains both behaviors, which again, getting back to good scientific theory, uh, a theory that has the power to explain disparate effects is a, a better theory than having two separate theories that don't interact, that seem to conflict with each other, which is kind of where the state of uh, relativity and quantum mechanics is now, I guess. Right. <laughs> so as people for a theory of everything in physics, uh, there, there's a theory of everything for God of the Bible too, yeah. try to understand his behavior as a whole uh, instead of you know looking at it in these narrow lenses yeah that that makes sense i guess um i'll, I'll rephrase a little bit i i understand where i spoke wrong so i guess there's there's two understandings of god's abiding by this moral code one is that he is um he is bound by it just like we are and one is saying that he's not you were saying when he decides to take a life it is justified because that person has sinned and the penalty for sin is death. He's doing it um, as judgment on that person. I've heard other people say, though, that even without any reason, God could decide to kill someone because he's created them, but he also allows for the opportunity to um, rectify that thing, not rectify as if he's done something wrong, but he, he understands the bigger picture. And so the life that he gives them 
later or the opportunity that he gives them later is um is the overall good so so he's doing he's doing an overall good and so his prerogative to take that life is his prerogative and doesn't make it wrong if that makes sense yeah, yeah, I think that does make sense. I, I think maybe murder is a little bit too hot button thing to <laughs> to discuss the whether yeah. God is his own law. Uh, I think one that's maybe a little more mind bending even is, um, you, you know, the concept of the the Sabbath. You know, having holy time because as we understand, you know, God experiences time in a very different way than we do, and also we experience time on a turning globe with this 24-hour cycle, mm -hmm. and so, you know, does God pick a point on the earth, and that's when he observes the Sabbath? Ah, I see. Yeah. I think that that, I, I think that you know, what this speaks to is that because of the nature of the existence of God and that it's on a different plane than us, sometimes he doesn't necessarily engage with the uh, with his law in the way that we engage with it because it's yeah. on a different level. Uh, so so I, I would presume that there's a, a manifestation of the law that just applies to the character of who God is and the things that he does. And we, we see a different manifestation of that law that is constrained by our existence, if that makes sense. That is a far better way to put it. God engages with the law in a way that we might not engage with that same law. So again, it's, it's similar to the gray area in that he... It, we just might not perceive it in the same way because we have finite minds, we're human beings. So God's um, living by that law, which God, he is love. You know, he is just, he does have like these characteristics of him that are justice, that are mercy, that are all of these wonderful things. And those are all within that same law. So almost like the law is a characteristic of God himself. They are his character. They are his way. And so it's engaging in a very different way than we are. So it might appear in some time, in some aspects as if he is not engaging in that law, but that is only an appearance to us, similar to how those gray areas only appear gray to us because we have limited understanding. That was a great yeah. way to put that. Not by me, by you. Sorry, I wasn't complimenting myself there. <laughs> You demonstrated that you and we're able to put it in your own words. Right? Yeah, yeah. All right, so I have really, really enjoyed this conversation. This has been fantastic. I feel like we have about 100 new topics we can cover in the future just based on our diversions from some of the topics here. That had been, this has just been fantastic. So I really appreciate this kind of a guinea pig interview. Um, do you want to talk about just some final thoughts on both of these arguments, both the moral and the ontological arguments for God's existence? Yeah, sure, sure. I, I think that both of these arguments uh, kind of speak to this, this issue of what objectively exists, right? And uh, I, one analogy that I had thought, thought about in preparation for this was, you know, it doesn't matter what we, um, what we perceive. There are absolutes in nature, like the freezing point of water is 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and it doesn't matter if I tell you I think it's cold and you tell me, well, I don't think it's cold uh, outside right now. The, the fact of the matter is there is a transition point that exists at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. Um, so, so it, it, you know, all the different uh, views of, of if this, then that, they, they all kind of come up against what re reality actually is, which is part of what these arguments are about. What What is reality? Or as Pontius Pilate put it, what is truth? Speaking of Jesus Christ, <laughs> what is truth? And I, I think if we, uh, <laughs> maybe we can tackle that in, in another uh, another podcast sometime. I think I'd really yeah. enjoy it. Um, and on, on that point, you know, we, if we believe that the Bible is truth, uh, I said this kind of at the outset, it has to be able to stand up to the test of any argument any theory against it, any claim against it. And I think we've seen how the Bible does that through our discussion on, on these points with the ontological argument, standing up against reason, standing up against uh, the, the idea of whether morality exists. Uh, but, but also, you know, there's much more than that. There's a lot more reasons to believe in, in the word of God, whether it's scientific inquiries, whether we're looking through a microscope, whether we're looking through a telescope. Uh, it, it all points us to the, the same thing. And, you know, the same goes for whether we're digging in the dirt and pulling things out of archaeology or digging through the books and pulling things out of history. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Bible stands up to 
to, to every point. And I, I think I'm always just going back to some of these fundamental arguments with you is really just a humbling process to see how deep the proof of God can go. And seeing it in all these different facets is it's amazing. So I appreciate very much the invitation to talk with you. Yeah, it really is. This has been great for me. I, I've really enjoyed every minute of it. I hope that everyone listening has enjoyed this as well. If we, uh, I hope we brought a little, maybe a little clarity to some of these arguments or presented them to you maybe for the first time. Um, if we didn't bring any clarity, I hope we at least brought interest because I know we were kind of across like all over the board with a couple of these things, but um there, these are things to look into. If you're if you're a Christian, these are things to, like he said, God stands up to every test. So these are these are tests that you can run your faith through. I think this has been really the whole point of this podcast is thinking critically about the Bible, and so not just taking the assumption that God exists, but actually going in and doing the work and seeing like there is actual rationale for this belief. Um, not just taking the fact that, well, I grew up in church, so the Bible is just what I read. No, look at what it says, and you can find that there there aren't contradictions there. There is truth there. Um, so I, I've really appreciated this discussion just because it does bring it down to the fundamentals, and it's not something that should shake your faith if you're a Christian, um, if, if you don't understand something in this, but it can be a good faith builder, I think. And um, if you're if you're not a Christian, I hope you've enjoyed the discussion and are maybe at least encouraged to look at this stuff a little bit deeper and realize that it's a lot more than just five or six points on a page from a theologian that you don't respect. It's actually a discussion, a conversation, and there's rational thought behind uh, the beliefs that we hold. It's not it's not on a whim or on a fancy. Even though personal experience is very important to us, we do have rationale for our beliefs. So thank you again. Any last words, Dr. Britt? Uh, no, just uh, thanks one more time so much for the opportunity to, to talk with you. I, I really did enjoy this. Absolutely. Thank you. We'll, we'll hope to have you on again sometime. So until next time, keep on reading your Bibles and keep on thinking critically about them. Appreciate everybody listening um, and tune in next time. See you guys later.